Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And before we get started, we're going to do a drawing of the face masks that we had put on all of our social media. So Haley put all the bunches of names into a generator, and she's going to pick two right now. One, they each get one mask, right? Yeah. Okay, Kay. go ahead. Go, go, go. Our first winner is Amanda Seabaugh. I think she's on our Instagram, our group and our page. She's on all of them. Yeah. So congratulations. So she got multiple empties in, entries in. So <laughs> so Amanda, um, go ahead and send us an email at huntinghistorypodcast.com with your address and we will get your mask in the mail to you this weekend and you get to pick one more. Okay. Our next one is true crime memes from Instagram. Instagram. So true crime memes. Um, we don't have a name for you. So if you could please email us, hopefully that you're listening, we'll send you a message on Instagram too. But if you um, get a chance, go ahead and email us at hauntinghistorypodcast.com with your mailing address and we'll get your mask in the mail to you. So good, that's done. And then we, we have another give a, a giveaway coming up for our Patreon members. Yeah, so we will do a giveaway for only the people that are subscribe to us on Patreon at any of the levels. So we have a $2 level, a $5 level, and a $15 level. So anyone who is on Patreon gets entered into the giveaway and it's going to be a shirt. It's a baseball shirt. It's so cool. So cute. Um, a sticker, a coaster, a mask, and then maybe a hat if and we can get it done in time. So the baseball tee is a white and black baseball tee. It's super cute. So that um, we're, we're starting that when? It'll be posted on social media by tomorrow. And then anybody, they don't have to do anything. They just have to be a Patreon. And then we're going to pick one name out of that. And they're going to get this whole prize package. Yep. Okay, perfect. So if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you'll remember the story that we did on Deborah Lynn. The, the, episode, the series was called The Disappearance of Deborah Lynn. This is, a, this is similar in that the name is the same. Both went missing from California. Both were females. Both disappeared in the 1970s. But the differences between the two Debras is distinct, though. Deborah Lynn went missing as a mother and an adult. The Deborah we're going to be talking about today was still a child. It is estimated that over 400,000 children go missing from the U.S. every year. Most are found within hours, either with friends or hiding out or simply running away to do something they weren't allowed to do. But this Deborah wasn't found in hours or days or weeks and even months. She's been missing almost 50 years, 49 to be exact. Her parents have since passed away since that fateful night in 1971, but her siblings are still alive today and still want to know what happened on June 5th, 1971 that changed their lives forever. They hope, as we always do, that there's someone somewhere out there that knows something. And if that's you, we'll have a phone number and a link to reach out with any information that you may have at the end of the episode. On June 5th, 1971, Deborah and a group of friends went to the movies at the small Corona Theater in Corona, California. Not unlike other teens who spent their evenings at the local theaters in the 1970s, Deborah and her friends were no different, probably boisterous and loud and barely paying attention to the movie in front of them. Deborah and her friends were caught smoking in the bathroom and they were asked to leave. 
Her brother followed her out. She told him not to worry. She would be back before their parents got there to pick them up and that she's going to walk to City Park, which is a local park located just 0.8 miles down the same street as a theater. She was never seen again. I was lucky enough on this case to get the entire police file, which I think that it would be easier for me to go through the police file and just read that now. And then our next episode is going to be an interview with her sister, Bethany, who was just six at the time, but grew up in the shadow of her sister, her sister's disappearance. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the repercussions of what it did to her family. First, uh, this is probably, I mean, it's not like we have a lot of experience on missing persons cases, but this is a perfect example of a, a family who, who spiraled out of control, whether it was from her disappearance or whether it's uh, just the family dynamics in general, but we'll get into all that. Um, she was actually not reported missing until the next day. I think originally her parents probably thought that she got caught up with a group of friends and maybe got too late and she didn't want to tell them, you know, like where she was or she was just having too much fun and stayed out. But I do know what I've learned since then is that her dad and her uncle and a cousin all searched for her all night. And so the original police report was, again, I'm going to read directly from the police report, was dated June 6, 1971 at 11 a.m. So an entire, what's 8 p.m. to 11 o'clock the next morning. 16 hours? Is it that long? Um, I don't know. I can't do math. I know. 11, 15 hours later. She was reported 15 hours later. And it says that it was reported by her dad, George Pajolka, and her mom, Sharon Pajolka. And the description says, Deborah was kicked out of the Corona Theater last night, along with several of her other juveniles. She failed to return home. Father has checked with known friends with negative results. And that was, um, again, at 11 o'clock the next morning. And then there is, and I was really lucky, the detective I spoke to gave me as much information as he had. Obviously, it's something that happened 49 years ago. So to him, it's a cold case that he checks in with once a year. But he still had the phone number for her sister, Beth, and um, some of the brothers. There's She had three brothers total. One of them is now deceased. But she he had the phone numbers that I could call them and talk to them. And and isn't this like real, isn't this kind of known in Corona though? Anyway, wasn't her missing poster still up at the station or something when you called? Uh, yeah, my original phone call, the the woman who answered the phone told me that there was a missing poster still up uh, uh, with Deborah's her picture and the age progression to about nineteen. I guess she would have been forty eight was the progression they did her to, and it was still hanging in the police department when we went to pick up the file. It wasn't anymore, which is really weird. It's kind of just a coincidence, but they had just taken it down to paint a wall or something. So it wasn't there when we went but there. crazy. That's been there for that long. Like it's clearly something in Corona that... Well over 40 years. Yeah. And I, w- I posted on a, on a vintage Corona Facebook page, and I had a ton of people comment that remembered the story, remembered the family, and I actually ended up getting in contact with one of the girls that was at the movie theaters that night. So the next report in the file isn't until a full month later. It was on July 11th, 1971. So a little over a month later, her dad, George, had gotten from his daughter, who again was only like six at the time, said that she overheard that her sister was staying at the Langdon's house, the Langdon's family, which was 
literally right down the street from them off of um, 7th Street in Corona. And the report says that I, the detective contacted the informant who had called him, George Pajolka, again her dad, that at this date of 2025 hours, subject stated that his small daughter had heard that the missing juvenile may possibly be staying at the Langdon residence because of a conversation she overheard coming from Debbie Langdon, just coincidence, that's the same name, age six. So these are two six-year-olds listening to each other's conversations. Information obtained from Carl Langdon revealed that Mr. Pajolka's intelligence was false. Mr. Langdon stated that the missing juvenile has not been at his residence since she was reported missing. Further information furnished by the Langdons revealed that the missing juvenile had been seen by their daughter, who is 15, at the Chrysler residence within the last two weeks. So there's a lot of information going back and forth. I think that her parents still think that she might be a runaway and be staying with friends. So he's out confronting all these fathers of all these other juveniles and saying, is my daughter here? Mm -hmm. And so he believed that he was there. And they did a check of the house. There's little further notes that they looked for her, but it didn't seem like she was there. The only thing that I find really weird is that it doesn't have the next contact is not with that other family, the Chrysler family. You would think the police would have gone like that. George Pazolka said, I think he's at Carl Langdon's house. And Carl Langdon said, no, he's not. But I heard that he was at the Chrysler's residence. There's no follow up as to whether they checked with this other family. Well, I think it's weird that the next report isn't for a month later. A month like later. why weren't, why weren't the, quote unquote friends that she was with why weren't they checked up on why yeah, weren't they asked why is there no reports about the police going to the friends and being like hey were you with debbie and where is she yeah no and what's really weird is that there's no reports in here that the police went and talked to the friends whatsoever but the officer told me the detective that's on the case told me that they they talked to the staff at the movie theater and they talked to the friends, but there's no record of it in this entire file. So I don't know why that is. And I don't, he told me that he gave me the entire file. And the staff person at the movie theater confirmed that they had gotten kicked out. Yes, that they kicked her out. But then didn't know anything after that. Didn't know anything after that. And the brother has told me that he did follow them out and he stuck his head out the door. She was with a group of friends and she said, don't worry, I'm going to go to City Park. I'll, I'll be back. He does not know whether she went to City Park alone or if she um, went with that group of friends. So the only thing I can surmise from this is that maybe the group of friends didn't really go with her. So they didn't really, that she walked off by herself. So the only thing that we know for sure is that she went to the movies, got kicked out, and was in the bathroom. The last time anyone saw her technically, I guess. Was out front of the movie theater. Out front of the movie theater. In front of the movie theater. The one thing I do want to mention is though right across the street from this movie theater, which by the way, it's still there. It's now a church. It's a really old, beautiful theater. And I heard the inside is amazing. I, they wouldn't let us in, but right across the street where there's a bank at now, there's a bank parking lot there now. But at the time there was a very old boarding house where they had, I don't even know how to say it. Um, it wasn't really transients, but it was not, it wasn't a good crowd, I guess. It was sort of people who, went in and out and I guess that it was I guess Sixth Street I'd still like that today but during that time it had already changed over to being sort of a transient area there were prostitutes that hung out there were men who were just coming through town staying at that boarding house and I don't know that if that comes into play but everyone says that, you, that their kids were told to stay away from the boarding house 
and it was I can't even describe it. It was four lanes of a street right across the street. It was right there. So not a safe place for a 12-year-old in no, general. Not a not a safe place for a 12-year-old. Not a safe place really for anyone, let alone a 12-year-old girl. Which, by the way, I want to describe her because I've, I have one picture of her. Um, she was born on November 7th, 1958. She was 12 years old. She had brown hair, brown eyes. She was 5'6 at 12 years old. That's really tall. She was very tall. Her sister claims she wasn't 5'6", which I don't know that she can. She was, again, she was a child. Everything I found has said that she was 5'6", between 5'5 five, five and 5'6". Five, and the picture that I saw, she looked much older than a 12-year-old. Yeah, she does look older. She definitely was more developed than most 12-year-olds. So if she had been walking down the street, I don't think that a person driving by would have thought that she was a little kid at 5'6". Right. I'm like, no, I'm not even 5'6", and I'm 26. Yeah, she's she's very tall. Okay, so the next page in the file, and I was given the file in order, and I'm really frustrated because this doesn't even have a date on it. Um, it says that the police were contacted by Sherry Sadler, who I found out later is a cousin of the Pajolka children, the boys in the in um, Beth, who we're going to talk to, and again, Debbie. And it says that she lived with the family. The detective contacted the above set subject, which is Sherry Sadler, at her residence, the subject stated that at about 1955 this evening, she received a telephone call. She stated that the caller said, Debbie is dead, you won't see her again. Subject stated that the caller hung up before she could make a reply. Subject stated that the voice was a female about 17 years old. Now, I don't... I hate when stuff like that is in stories because there's no way... You know someone's 17. Like, she could have said teenager. Well, like, there's just no way to verify that that even happened. If that even happened. The thing is, is that this is the cousin that lived with them, and she was at home. But if she was living there, why wasn't the mom part of the, the report? The mom or the dad? Like, was the cousin at their house by themselves, by herself? Yeah, I don't know. Um, the next one is not dated until November 27th, so almost six months after she went missing, or six months after she went missing. It says again from Sherry Sadler, and she's still at their residence on 7th Street. She lived with them. And it says details on 11-27-71 added approximately 14-10 hours and 14-20 hours. Informant stated that she received two phone calls. Informant stated that the first call at 14-10 hours, she heard a female voice in the background stated Dave, stating, David, come here. Then subject hung up. Informant stated at approximately 14, 20 hours, the phone rang again, and she heard what she thought was a tape recording. Informant stated that there was a lot of static in the background and a female voice screaming and crying, oh God, I want to come home. Then the suspect hung up the phone. So at that point, Sherry's now gotten three phone calls in the house. All, all random and doesn't seem connected to each other. And, and... Is she the only one that answers the phone? Yeah. Like, it seems it seems a little suspicious. And when I talked to Beth about this, she said she'd never heard that her cousin got phone calls. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. What to make of it. I really don't. I don't want to say that it's crazy. And, and if you didn't know if police did this or not, they do. There are different websites. I know that all our listeners are probably really familiar if you're into true crime, like Web Sleuths and Reddit. The police will go in and print out conversations about missing persons when they're when they're looking into it again. Yeah, it's Be so smart. 
Because once a year they have to pull the file out on a cold case and they have to check and see if there's anything that they can do different now with technology, whether it's DNA or tracing or anything like that. And um, the next thing in the file is an entire um, exchange between some people on WebSleuths. And they just stuck this in the file, which is really interesting. There wasn't anything in here. I mean, they're really good armchair detectives out there. This one, um, they seemed to be able to track down um, Debbie's sister, Beth. And then this is really interesting. In just really recently, it wasn't that many years ago, and I don't have the exact date on it. There was a Jane Doe, an unidentified Caucasian female, that was located in 1979 in Mendocino, Mendocino County, California, it was just her, and it was just her skull and her teeth and some bones. But she matched, and it's really weird, and I'll post this on our, I'll post this on our, our episode page, but look at the similarities in these two girls. This is Debbie right here, and this is the recreation of what they thought. This yeah. body... They look alike. Yeah, they do. They have a lot of similarities. So because of this, someone had, and I don't know, it could even be Justin. I wanted to mention that we got this story from Justin, the 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 man that does the submissions to the Doe Network. And he gave us a story because I'm very familiar. I've done a ton of research on Corona. So I was very uh, familiar with the movie theater. And it was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this story. But And he might have actually submitted this. And again, I'm going to post this on our episode page. So make sure you click on that. If you can't see it on the platform you're listening to, you can always go to hauntinghistorypodcast.com. It's our episode webpage. And I'll have both of these on here. And you can see how much they look alike. But it was when that body was, she was found in 1979. And they didn't have the technology until really recently to try and do a match between Deborah and... Um, this this human remains that they found. And unfortunately, it didn't match. And the way that they had all of, they have an entire DNA kit on Debbie through her sisters and her brother and an aunt who all submitted DNA. And then the other brother, the youngest brother, who had really no connection to Debbie whatsoever, he was a baby when she went missing, he lived in the mother's house and he found a box. Each of the children had a box of pictures and locks of hair. So he had submitted the, her actual hair to have the DNA done. I think it was easier for them. I don't know that they could even use the hair because it was like a cut off piece of hair. But they have a whole entire DNA profile on Debbie now. And they tried to match to this Jane Doe that they found. And even though the vital statistics are extremely close, extremely close, her approximate height and weight was five five, and uh, the same weight as her, or what they could figure out. She was one hundred and twenty five pounds, but that's another young girl that was five five. Yeah. So they were almost certain that the this body that they found was Debbie's body, and it turns out that it was not. Unfortunately, this was my most exciting find in the file, as far as you know, because I'm crazy. Is they actually printed out um, a page from Ancestry dot com. Because someone tried to find her sister on here to talk about her missing case, her missing person's case. Yeah. And so a printout from Ancestry.com, I mean, it, it doesn't really have anything other than Beth had actually posted that Deborah was her older sister. and She's been missing since 
1971. We've never heard from her. We don't even know if she's alive or passed away. If she's alive, we are anxious to hear from her or at least know she's doing okay. But I was super excited to see that the police actually use Ancestry.com too. Um, the next comments in the file were from October of 2006. They contacted Beth again and um, arranged to meet with her this time. They She didn't have, obviously, any more information on the disappearance of her sister, but Bethany did provide information on the siblings and relatives who would be able to provide DNA. Beth voluntarily um, did a swab sample, and they put it in their DOG, the DOJ Missing Person DNA Program, and that was when they determined that the 1979, the body that they had found many years ago, was not hers. So Beth did that, and then... There's contact information for her brother, Jeff, who, again, was at the movie theater again. He, in the, in this file, there's, a, there's a, a whole entire report on this. And it says, during the middle of October 1994, I was contacted by Julie Cable of the Corona Police Records Supervisor regarding an open missing persons report that was filed in 1971. The Department of Justice had conducted an audit at the Corona Police Department on a missing person's computer entry located above in 1971 on the missing person's Deborah Pozolka. During the following week, I made several checks through the Department of Motor Vehicles Riverside County computer contact and um, was able to reach Jeff Pozolka on a phone number, which I won't give. On 11-24-94 at 1.30 hours, I telephoned Jeff Pozolka and asked if he was related to Deborah Pozolka. He told me that he was and that he was her younger brother. I asked him what the status of Deborah was, and he told me that he and his family never heard from her since that date of 6-5-71. Jeff explained to me that back then that he and his family lived in Corona and that he and Deborah had been taken to the Corona Theater by his parents. During the movie, Deborah and a girlfriend had been caught smoking and were removed from the theater. Before leaving, she had told him that they were going to City Park and we returned to the theater in time for their parents to pick them up. Jeff said that she never returned. Jeff said that an officer Montoya had responded to investigate the incident. He also told me that the name of Deborah's girlfriend was Yolanda, and he did not know her last name. He said that he believed that Yolanda graduated from Corona Junior High also in either 1970, 71, or 72. He told me that the nickname of Deborah's boyfriend was Timo and that she was a me- he was a member of the Brown Beret gang from Corona. Jeff also told me that his mother passed away and that his father had moved out of state and that Jeff didn't want the police bothering him because their family was upset on how the Corona Police Department handled the case originally. I asked Jeff if he wanted me to follow up on the case, and he referred me to their sister, Beth. Within the the next few days, I contacted Beth and told her the reason why I was calling, she related to me that the same information that her brother, Jeff, had, and Bethany agreed to bring in photographs of Debbie and any other information she had since the disappearance. I have not heard from Bethany since our conversation and have been unable to contact her. It appears as if the family does not wish to pursue this matter further. I'm so curious why the boyfriend's coming up now. One of the things that Jeff has held on to, and again, I've met Jeff, you've met Jeff, is that he was very hooked on the whole her boyfriend was in a gang. But I've looked up this Brown Beret gang and they weren't technically a gang. They were a group of people. They were actually high-functioning students. They were the kids that did really well in school, and they called them themselves Brown Beret because they tried to promote um, for their their culture. They were of Hispanic culture, 
promote doing well and succeeding in school. So kind of the total difference of a So gang. he's trying to say that he's part of a gang, like a scary gang. Right. And it really wasn't a gang. It was more like a school organization promoting. It was an educational club. Right. They were trying to promote continuing education in their culture that to do well in school and stuff like that. So it's that kind of threw me off. I mean, he's very, very, very stuck after having met him. And, and I guess we met him at the theater and we went to, to city park. He's very stuck on her being missing from city park. Very, very stuck on it. And to be honest, we don't know if she ever even got to city park. And he was the brother that was with her. At he, the was movie theater. Theater. he was only nine. He was at the theater. He harbors like a shit ton of guilt. And this is what I mentioned earlier. I don't know if we mentioned it, that the family did. I did. We did spun out of control. He's definitely a perfect example of that. And I think that, and and we'll get more into it later, but I, I think that even coming back to the story now has kind of fuckered him up a little bit. Yeah. And, and I don't know why. I don't know what happened that night. And I haven't mentioned this yet, but the family situation was not ideal. The dad I have found out since then was physically and emotionally extremely abusive throughout their entire childhood. To everyone in the family. To everyone in the family. Beth claims that he took it out more on the boys than her because, and that might be because she was very, very young, but there were times where I felt like I wasn't qualified to tell the story mm-hmm. because the the abuse sounds so severe. Yeah. And I think a lot of the problem with the family and the police stem from that. The family, the children, I mean, they were just children. They were nine. I mean, he was the oldest. He was nine. She was only 12. The younger brother, Tim, was only six. So he was the oldest boy. He was the oldest boy. And then Beth was really young. I think she was only five. And then the other brother, Mike, who's since passed away, was only three when she went missing. So it went Debbie, Jeff. Tim. Tim. Beth. Beth. Mike. Mike. And Tim and and Mike and, and Jeff all grew up being, I mean... Very badly abused, very badly abused. Yeah. Physically, in every way imaginable. And uh, Beth doesn't know quite to the extent her sister faced the abuse. So I think within the family, I think especially the mom, and this is really sad, the mom continued to buy birthday presents and Christmas presents for Debbie until she died, basically. Yeah. Uh, she believed that her daughter ran away. She did not believe that she was abducted. And I don't know why she thought that. I wish that we could go back and ask her. But I think she knew that the abuse was so severe in the house that it was not far-fetched that Debbie ran away and that she's out there somewhere right now. Just living her life. Just living her life. Um, the thing is, is is the hard part. And, and, and the problem... The other thing is, is, is the family claims, and like Jeff said in that report way back in 1994, is that they were not happy with the way the police dealt with it. But the dad was in trouble with the law a lot. And the boys ended up being in trouble with the law a lot. To the extreme that one of the brothers is now in prison. And I don't know if it really was the police that didn't pursue this, or if it was 
I don't know. I don't know if it was a discrimination because socioeconomic kind of discrimination, like that family's crazy. The kids are always running away They're and they just, the dad's drunk. The dad's a drunk. Like I wonder if it had gone differently. I guess my point is, I wonder if the search for her would have gone differently. Had it been a pillar of society's child. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like maybe the police just stayed away from this family. They were already a problem. And now great. Now the daughter's good for her. At least she's gone. At least she's out of it now. So I don't or know. The dad had so many issues with the law. He didn't want them coming around and snooping around his family. That's the other side. I don't know. We don't know. Um, I do know. And again, like I just said that the, the mom believed that her daughter was alive. Her mom, the mom until she died, absolutely believed that she was still alive. I don't, I don't disagree with them. Unless what, that she was, she's still alive. That she could, that she could have left that night. The only problem with that idea is that she was only 12. Where would a 12 year old have known to get far enough away that they would never find her and that she could change her name and, and all at those other what things. seems like at a whim. It's not like she left one day. She was at the movies and they got kicked out. It's not like it was planned. Right. So um, the police have endlessly discussed over the years the possibility there were several serial killers in the area during the time that she could have been abducted by. And, and that's definitely not that much of a stretch. There were also, there's a lot of cult activity during that time. Um, could a cult have picked her up and said, hey, we have a great, sweet, nice place for you to go live? That's terrifying to me. It <laughs> is, but for a little girl that was probably suffering, well, first of all, she didn't look like a little girl, and she was probably suffering at the hands of severe abuse by her father that, you know, maybe someone in a cult would have been easily easily able to lure her away. But I'm I'm curious why her plan was to go to the park anyway if she went by herself. Who was she meeting at the park? Apparently it was a place where a lot of teenagers hung out during that time. And the thing is, she was only 12. She was in junior high. That's like what, seventh grade? She was seventh, she was a seventh grader. And that seems like a lot of freedom that she would even think it was okay to leave the movie theater and walk 0.8 miles. And when I say 0.8 miles, which isn't really far, um, it's not visible from the front of the theater. If you're standing in front of the theater, you can't see City Park. I mean, and now you certainly don't want to go there. It's a terrible, terrible place to go now. But it, it, I don't know that it was any safer of a neighborhood back then. But the bottom line is the family really did not think they portray it now that the police didn't help very much in the search for her. And I think we'll probably get more into that when we talk to her sister, Beth, we talked to her sister, Beth, and we did try and talk to Jeff. And again, we met Jeff and, and Beth at the movie theater. And then we went over to city park, but putting Jeff back in this situation again has kind of made him spiral out of control again. Yeah. And, I, he also has a severe, she has, he has some serious health issues and we did try and record him and we couldn't hear him. So we're not going to be able to probably talk to him again, but I guess the story, the bottom line is the, the repercussions of someone going missing and just not knowing what happened to them ever again has really messed up this family. Um, I want to go through the, there's, there's a couple other things in the file but one of the things I wanted to talk about was that I'm frustrated again because it doesn't have a lot of dates, but this is a report 
um, that was done in 2006. And I guess Timothy, it was his Timothy is in custody in the San Bernardino County jail booking. And I'm not going to go into why he's in, in prison, but I don't want to sugarcoat any of the story. He's in prison for something severe. And I don't think Beth wanted me to convey. She didn't want me to hide the story. She wanted me to tell the whole story because a, if Deborah is listening and can let her family know that she's still alive, that if she did survive and run away that day, her sister wants to hear from her. So I don't want to sugarcoat the story because I don't want to give the impression that that the family is going to deny anything that was going on. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? A safe place for her to come back to. Right. No, I'm not. And and we talked endlessly. Beth and I have talked endlessly that when we tell the story that we're going to tell it honestly about what was going on in the family and what's transpired in the family. And also because if you sugarcoat it, then people don't necessarily feel comfortable coming forward with the truth. So someone that knows something about what happened that night, a little girl didn't just walk into a shadow. She, someone had contact with her that night and that someone might still be alive. So we want to tell the story in its entirety and what was going on within the family and what was going on with Deborah to be completely open in the event that A, someone saw something or that Debbie hears this someday and knows that her sister, her sister really wants to know where she went. Her sister, even if she doesn't want a relationship with her, she wants to know. It's consumed her life. It's consumed, 100% has consumed. She was only six and she or five and she's lived this story her entire life. She barely knew her sister, but this has taken up her entire life. And it has completely been, if not the entire reason, which I don't think it was the entire reason, a big, huge part of the fact of why her brother spun so out of control as they did. And again, we witnessed it with her own eyes, just reliving it again for Jeff has, has fuckered him up again. And, and I know a lot of it is that he takes full responsibility. He is the last person to see her alive as far as they know. Yeah. He was the last one to see her go back in 2006. Timothy Pajolka had made contact with a detective Dunnigan. Um, he was cooperative and he provided a sample too to, um, put into the DNA database. And that's her brother. That's her brother. It's the one that's incarcerated. Um, in on November 30th, 2006, Detective Dunnigan responded again to Jeff Pazolka's residence when this is when he was living in Lucerne Valley. Um, he spoke to him on the telephone. Jeff told me that he was with Deborah on the date of her disappearance. Again, he was really young. Jeff told me that Deborah left the theater with three or four Hispanic females and that they were on the way to City Park Jeff said that he did not know the females' names, but he was able to identify them from a photograph and that he had a 1971 yearbook. Jeff said he would cooperate and provide the DNA sample. I obtained the Corona yearbook from 69, 70, 71, and 72, and Deborah's photograph is on page 35. In an interview with Detective Edwards, we met Jeff at his work in Victorville. Jeff looked through the 1971 Corona High School yearbook and picked out the following pages. He said that Dolores on page 15, Teresa on page 16, Yvonne on page 25, Yolanda on page 26, Irene on page 26, and Dolores Tolliver on page 36 were all the females that were with him, that seemed familiar to him. He couldn't be positive if any of them were exactly the people that was with us. He believed those, basically, he believed those were the girls that, a combination of those girls were the ones that were with her that night. And weirdly, in one of the really early reports, 
he said she was with a Yolanda. And so he points out a Yolanda on page 26. And then another, and a month later, they made contact with Mike Pasholka. He's the brother that's passed away now by telephone and attempted to get his cooperation to submit another DNA sample. Mike declined to give a sample and asked to not be bothered anymore and no further action would be taken at this time. At some point, Mike, who again was the youngest, um, basically told the police to fuck off, that they never helped his family. He doesn't want to have anything to do with them. They're never going to find a sister. Move on. Move on. Fight me. It seems like the police are doing more, have done more since 2006, though, right. than they did in the months that she went missing. Yeah, it's really, it's it's strange. Unless they redacted certain things, there's nothing in here about um, each individual interview with any of the girls that night, which I find very odd. It's like they talked to the dad, talked to the friend, and that was it. That was it. Yeah. And that's it. And then the murder of the files, everything that's happened since 1995 and, or 1994 and forward. So I don't know. Maybe the family's right. Maybe the police, again, like we you talked about, the police didn't do a lot. Um, or there's been several articles. If you look up Deborah Pajolka, there's an article in a newspaper, the Press Enterprise, and Beth said that she was interviewed for a TV show one time on her disappearance. And nothing's ever come of it, ever. There's never been any remains that match Deborah. There's no... Um, indication i personally found a couple deborah's listed in other places so i called the detective and he said they all checked out and were not her either so i just don't know how a 12 year old would disappear and be able to have a life have a life and and change her name and be gone forever i mean i don't i mean i guess at 12 she really didn't look 12 I mean, I guess an older man could have picked her up she doesn't look much older than 12 though she looks like a freshman or sophomore in high school so in, in the other picture I have, which again, I'll post too, she looks much older than that. And the unfortunate thing is they don't have a lot of pictures of her. When the parents split up and the mom, she had all the stuff. She had the individual boxes for each of her children. And she had an addict that had all of Debbie's stuff in it. And she had all the, she'd buy her, again, like, like I said, she would buy her a birthday gift and a Christmas gift and put them all up in the addict. Unfortunately, Mike was the one that ended up at the house and, again, had no connection to his sister whatsoever because he was just a baby and did not really care to pass that on to anyone else and destroyed or kept most of it. So no one knows what happened to most of the photographs or even the gifts that were left to her. And, I mean, I again, we're going to get more into the family dynamics when we talk to Beth next week. And it's, I mean... Buckle up. It's kind of a lot of, I don't know how much she's going to share, but it was, this was definitely, I felt out of our league for a big portion of this, finding out about the um, level of abuse that was going on in that household. And I guess I sometimes question I whether I blame her for running away from the situation if that's what happened. Yeah. In the 1970s, the police didn't have the technology that we have today. No cell phone messages to read, no towers to ping, no social media posts to dissect or track down. DNA tracking wasn't even a thought, and today's technology takes some of the question work out of finding the lost. Would they have found her, or would she still be missing today? Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to follow and comment on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. 
And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. And remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.